We're going to um, go into a next part of a couple of special interviews, uh, three contributors actually, and um, as I mentioned earlier to the kids, we're going to have Priscilla and Nita come up first, um, and for those of you who don't know them, they belong to the family of Anton with Terza, Terza and Jaden, and um, they are a wonderful little family who shifted to Gisborne from Napier a year ago, and uh, Priscilla, Nita's mum, spends several months of the year in New Zealand, and then she um, heads back to Chennai and India, uh, and uh, and she's leaving us next month. So please come up, ladies. Please welcome them, everyone. <clears throat> Might just get you to stand on this side, Priscilla. Is that all right? Don't they look beautiful? In fact, um, Easter Sunday, they really rocked celebration. I don't know if you saw the beauty and the colour all over them. They looked so stunning, and I felt like Easter Sunday. I felt like he is risen <laughs> just through what you wore in celebration. So uh, I've asked them specifically to share some of the story, and particularly the story of Sueb, an NGO um, in India, which Priscilla started 33 years ago. Now, I'm not going to tell you what that stands for because, well, it's a mouthful. You can ask her later. Um, but just uh, chatting with you guys earlier this week, I now appreciate um, your rich history in the faith, a very rich history. Um, and so I'll start with you, Nita, if you can share a little about the work of your great-grandmother there in Chennai. Kia ora. So my great-grandmother was an extraordinary woman. Um, and as a child, I've had the privilege to um, get to know her and spend some time with her. And I can say that she's a woman of faith, um, a prayer warrior, and a woman who had a heart for her community. And even in, in hard times, her faith has never wavered. Um, she was married off at a very young age to a very rich Hindu man in Malaysia. And... When she moved to Malaysia, of course, her husband wanted to give up her faith and wanted her to follow Hinduism. Um, but in spite of all that, I think she was faithful to God and continued to pray for her husband's spiritual well-being and for her children. And when her husband passed away, um, she moved to India with her four children. Um, and I must say, um, in spite of having the hardships of having to raise four children on her own, um, she had a mission. She had a mission to share God's word and love. And she did that through um, opening up a home for people in need. Um, she used to run, as a child, I remember she used to have weekly prayer and fasting um, meetings in a community. Very few people would turn up, but she would still continue to have them. And she also supported her daughter, that's my grandmother's <clears throat> sister, who started an orphanage in the community. Um, so I see that the legacy that she's passed on um, is of, I think, not just to her children, uh, her grandchildren, and beyond is her legacy of faith, love, and acts of kindness and charity, really. You might like to have a seat, because now we're going to enjoy Priscilla for a little bit, too. <laughs> so, um, Priscilla, I know that at the time you started Sueb, you were an assistant professor at a university teaching education and a mum. 
Please tell us your motivation and passion for starting the work, please. I was born in a Christian family, like uh, from my father's side, uh, I'm fourth generation Christian, and from my mother's side, second generation Christian. But then, because both my parents were Christians and committed Christians, they brought us up in a Christian faith, and they were involved in Christian ministry. They used to publish uh, Christian pamphlets and in thousands and distribute it in India among the non-Christians. And then they also helped many children uh, and uh, helped the poor. So that was a motivation for me. And uh, I was actually very much touched by the words of Jesus when he said that at the end he will separate the sheep and the goats, and whatever we do for the poor, we do unto him. So that was my uh, motivating factor. And I felt that God has blessed us with good education, good family, good standard of living. But then in our country, there are many, many, many women who do not have that. So that's only motivated me to start SWEB. Um, SWEB's goal is poverty alleviation through the empowerment of women. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's through four, there are four main ways, through self-help groups, small loans, micro-enterprise, and empowerment training. Self-help groups, first up. Can you explain what that is, please, Priscilla? So we call them self-help groups because uh, these are small groups made up of 12 to 20 women, and we limit it to 20 because if it's more than 20, they have to audit their accounts. So these are very small groups, and they save among themselves. They save about 100 to 200 rupees, which is about $2 to $4 a month. And this money is lent among themselves, and they use it, uh, and I can explain to you a little later about that. Um, today I know that there are close to 6,000 women in these self-help groups. So it's got a really massive wide reach, this little thing that started at birth 33 years ago, and in just this one arm of the four arms, self-help groups, 6,000 women, close to 6,000 women across 128 villages. Um, so small mo uh, moans, small loans <laughs> is um, a means to alleviate poverty. Priscilla, can you um, talk about the two ways those loans are made and how successful the model is? So one is the internal lending that they do. This is the savings that I talked about. And this money is used mostly for personal uh, needs, emergency needs. Their economy is so fragile that any sickness in the family or if they have to go to their native place for something or they have to buy some uh, books or notebooks for the children, immediately they don't have any extra money for that. And so whenever they had emergency needs, they would go to money lenders who would charge them exorbitant interest rates. For example, if they borrowed 1000 they had to pay 2200 minimum. And that, so most of them would be paying the interest 
and could never pay back the capital. So this was a very uh, bad situation that they were facing. But now, because of self-help groups, for all these emergency needs, they borrow from among themselves. So last year, the loans that they had borrowed among themselves was more than one million NZ dollars. So which meant that the interest that they get is also shared among them. So one thing, it gives them capital. The other thing, it helps them to meet their emergency needs and also their interest comes, so that's another additional income for them. The other one is the bank loan. So once these groups complete six months, they are asked to maintain books. So we also train them in maintaining accounts. And most of them are school dropouts. Most of them with whom we are working are school dropouts. But yet, because we give them training, they are able to form these groups and maintain these groups, maintain accounts. And depending upon the money that they have and the, account, and the maintenance of their accounts and the internal lending that they have done, the banks are willing to give them without any collateral. So which meant that these groups, though they are poor, they become bankable only because they stay in the group. So the, when they stay in the group, the bank gives them more money to start small activities. And this was more than uh, two million US dollars last year. So micro-enterprise um, is the third arm, and a few of us here are probably really familiar with that term. Uh, is there anything you can add about what that is, and then explain, or sorry, give an example of one or two of your favourite enterprises that um, women entered into, please. And uh, so micro-enterprise would just mean a small business. For example... Um, you know, we see uh, food being sold on the way. What, what do you call it? No, no, kiwi food? Uh, Maori food? Or you see uh, them selling corns or, uh, you know, fruits. So this is what we call as micro-enterprise. Something that is a small business and which helps them to earn money. So some of the examples are, here you'll see a lady, um, it's a semi-mechanized uh, uh, equipment where she's uh, uh, putting the thread in the bobbin, this is silk thread, to weave a silk sari. And the next picture is uh, a lady weaving a silk sari. Next. And uh, on the left you see uh, a lady having a small shop where the provision is sold. See. Many people don't get monthly income. They depend on daily wages. So when that happens, you don't have money to go and buy provision on a bulk. And uh, so every day you might get some money, and then you go to these small provision shops, just buy enough rice, just buy enough um, you know, oil or vegetables, and then cook your meal that day. So these are small shops which helps the women to earn income at the same, si same time it's a service for the poor. And the next one is fashion jewelry. These are artificial jewelry the, that they make. And as you all know, we Indians love wearing jewelry. <laughs> and uh, the next one is uh, 
tailor shop. And we all make tailor-made clothes. And uh, we can take clo uh, cloth and go and give it, give our measurement, and it will be exactly made to our size. So this is one of the very good opportunities for women to earn income. And they can uh, see we also give them training in uh, sewing. And at the same time, we also help them to buy these machines through these loans. And one example that I can give is a girl, she was about 22 years old, and she had a child, and her husband passed away. And uh, she was really devastated, and she didn't know what to do. So some of the students who attend our community college, where we teach them dressmaking and fashion design, went and told her, see, please come out. She had just shut herself in the house. She wouldn't see anybody. She wouldn't come out. And uh, then they went and shared about SWEB and the community college and encouraged her to come out. They told her, your life will no longer be the same if you come there. And then she attended. I met her after 15 days after she had joined. And she was so bold and courageous. She said, I'm a different person now. I have so much of confidence. The teachers and the students have helped me to see my future. Now I know I can earn money. I can support my child. I can even support my mother. Because she was living with her brother and her mother. And uh, so it is, and then she was able to complete the course and start a small business on her own of a tailoring shop. So the, there are many, many success stories like that, and I don't have the time. You can always have her over to your house. Um, as an educator, Priscilla, I know that empowerment training uh, is the poverty alleviation area that you are the most passionate about. Can you tell us why, please? Yeah, as I said, um, actually... Money alone is not going to help people. So especially with poor women who are not empowered and who have a second-class citizen status in their own family. And uh, so what can happen if they are not empowered, that money that they earn can also be taken away from them. And this can also increase their abuse. Second, they can also, they will not know how to use it. For example, if they start a small business, they will not know how to separate the capital from the profit. So we give them entrepreneurship development training. And we, uh, you know, like when they join our groups, they don't even speak, and they are shy, and they have such low self-esteem, because even in their own families, when they want to take decisions, they will all say, you don't know. And so they are not even allowed to take family decisions. And in a poor family, like in India, the social strata is very uh, evident. And uh, at the same time, also, the social life of people depends upon the social strata that you come from. So in a poor family, the woman has to, there is little food. First the man eats, and then the children and then if there is any leftover, the woman can get it. So even with food, they don't get a chance to eat well. So with these women, and also it is also taught as a virtue. 
So if you don't eat last, that means you're not a proper woman. You know, that kind of social um, thinking is perpetuated. So for these women to be able to earn and then to be able to use that money and have control over the money, this is helpful when they belong to a group. So when they are in a group in a village, and when there are about five groups in a village, their power becomes much more increased. And just one story about uh, legal education that we used, we also give them legal, uh, teach them about legal rights of women. And uh, once there was a lady and she was being beaten up by her husband very badly. And uh, so one day her brothers were very upset and they thrashed him up. So he went and gave complaints to the police and most probably he had given bribe also. So the police called her to the police station and started scolding her and started talking in a very derogative manner. And then she said she kept listening. And after the inspector finished, she said, Sir, I also know the legal rights of women. So immediately that inspector was shocked and he asked the policeman, what is she talking about? And then that man said, she might belong to that uh, women's organization, <laughs> which is down the road. And then immediately that inspector offered her a seat, started talking to her in a dignified way, and then she took her turn. She said, now you call my husband and advise him not to abuse me. And you're a protector of law, and you're supposed to protect women, and you're not supposed to take money and abuse them. So that man was forced to call the husband and advise him, happy to say it changed her life quite a bit. Bless you, Nita. After 33 years of journeying with Sueb, it has been your reward in the Lord to have seen fruit. Thank you for speaking to the impact of that ministry. Now, Nita, would you just come up? Um, so, Nita, I know you were Sueb's director, executive director, for almost eight years while your mum was in Switzerland. She says that you added a certain je ne sais quoi expertise, which attributed to the large growth of that organisation. Now, you are a community advisor with the Department of Tunnel Affairs. Tell us what lights your imagination in that work and the challenge of poverty alleviation right here. Well, I hail from a country where we have 300 million people who live in extreme poverty. And I think the poor in India sort of live in a churning pool of deprivation and with no means and opportunities to really break free or break, have a break from the vicious cycle of poverty, really. And poverty is on, in your face every day in India. And then I moved to New Zealand, and I see that poverty in New Zealand has a very different face. Um, the child poverty in New Zealand is shocking. Nearly one-third of New Zealand's children live in extreme poverty. Having worked with Plunkett in Napier, I've heard horrific stories from the Plunkett nurses who go into families 
where it's crowded, the houses are cold and damp, um, the children don't have nutritious meals, and even school-going children in primary or intermediate have don't have breakfast, don't take lunch because the parents can't afford or can't be bothered, or or even can't afford nutritious meals. So I see poverty in a very different way here in New Zealand. And I think my role in the Department of Internal Affairs as a community advisor sort of enables me to work with different community groups uh, here in this region who sort of work with communities in need um, and also using a strength-based model and working together to make a difference in the community, really. And I think the other opportunity um, I have in my role is to share my Christian values and also demonstrate that in action, especially the values that have been passed on from my great-grandmother, grandmother, mother, yes, I must say, and values such as love, um, humility, and servitude. Thank you. So, in God, all things are possible. Some of us, God has predestined to take on big tasks, like an NGO. It's amazing when God breathes his favor on your vision and your efforts and your talents. Uh, I'd like now to welcome up Faith Miller. She is on special loan to us from Phoenix, USA, via the AOG in Gisborne. Welcome, Faith. (laughs) Um, I asked Faith to come to share about how a vision was birthed out of her home church, the Fountain, is that right, in Phoenix? And it spread across that whole state and then into four other states in America, and now it's come to Gisborne. So OCJ Kids, can you tell us what that stands for? (laughs) It stands for Opportunity, Community, and Justice for Kids. Now, um... Two years ago at our Mother's Day service, we had a focus on fostering, and um, totally, two years on, I still believe, and um, I know I share the same opinion of whatever Chief Justice he was at that time, that fostering is the most effective way to make a difference in this community and in the area of poverty. Now, not all of us can take on a foster child Um, Long term, some of us, after that particular service, got around and provided uh, respite for Sandy and for Ben, because they have several foster children. And uh, there's also, we encouraged people to get around around Natalie, who whangais, three of her, her deceased brother's children. There's just so much to do in little ways. And I even said, hey, you guys who play rugby, would you consider going down with Natalie and um, helping her tie up three sets of boots? <laughs> They're the laces on the boys' rugby shoes, you know, because it's a small um, thing. But, man, it makes a big difference when you're one woman with a baby on your lap and three little sets of shoes to tie up for rugby. So there's lots of ways. Get creative. There's lots of ways to... Uh, make that kind of difference. Faith, can you share the heart of that vision, please? So as you saw, Gary Webb was the founder of the organization. Um, the heart 
of the entire ministry comes out of James 1.27, where it talks about how we are supposed to take care of the orphans and the widows, along with living a good life for God. Um, Gary and Tammy Webb started this organization out of my church, so it it was birthed very small. Just We just started out with our youth group and the church rallying around uh, foster group homes, which are basically modern-day orphanages. They have about 10 kids to a home, and they have a staff that rotates in and out of the house on an eight-hour basis. So it's this is not foster parents and a home atmosphere that I'm talking about. It's basically an orphanage. And he started this foundation in order to love on the kids. Um, because of the lack of parents in their life, they don't have good models. They don't have a support system. A lot of them don't graduate high school. A lot of them do not have their driver's license even, just the basics of that. So we found ways for people to partner up with these kids and connect the churches with them to rally around them, to support them, to share Christ's love with them so that these kids don't end up on the street as adults. Um, I think I heard one of the girls say, thanks to OCJ Kids, I don't have a black rubbish bag, I have a suitcase. Can you talk about that? So that was actually kind of the start of the entire organization. We found out that when a foster teen turns 18 years old, they are given $200 and a black trash bag to put all of their stuff in. They're basically told that they're worthless and that their their um, items have no value and they have no value. And they're kicked on the curb because there's nowhere for them to go. The government only supports you if you're underage. So in order to impact and change that, we started a system where we give out suitcases. They get a filled suitcase. It has toiletry items, uh, towels, uh, sheets, pillow. It also has a folder full of resources of different places that will offer help, like shelters and homes that they can go to temporarily, um, scholarships that are available to them because they are foster kids. And we give them a bus pass that has um, that will allow them to take the city bus for free for about a month. And we give them, I think it's about $500 worth of gift cards to different stores um, like Walmart and a Visa gift card that will work at various places to kind of help them step out into the world. And then they get a second um, suitcase that they can put all of their belongings in. We also follow up with them. Um, we started this thing where we asked them to call us on a monthly basis to just kind of check in, to find out how they're doing, where they're at, because once they leave the system, they disappear off the grid. So we have no feedback as to how they're doing. So we started a system about two years ago asking them to call in once a month, and then we would send them a gift card for pizza. And it seems to work so far. Um, I saw it kind of launched straight into things, and I didn't ask you how you came to be here with Guthrie and Jennifer. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it is kind of a stretch going from Arizona to here. So Guthrie and Jennifer were our, the pastors of the church that this launched out of. They were an integral part of Gary and Tammy being able to do what they do today, um, kind of their start. Um, Guthrie and Jennifer, about nine years ago, came back to New Zealand 
and eight years ago ended up becoming pastors at AOG. But because they were our pastors for 14 years in Arizona, we're very connected with them still. So a couple years ago, um, Guthrie and Jennifer had come over for a visit. We had them as a guest speaker for OCJ, and they saw some of the kits and things that were going on and wanted to implement some of that here with the program that's already running here called Tahahi. So Tahahi is where they are called by the police to go to a home that um, needs prayer or needs support, and they'll bring along um, food items for the home if they need it. And we kind of have an example over here of a bag that it has different items in it for a, an adult woman. It has, well, I'm assuming that's a ladies' bag. That might be male, I suppose. Um, but it has, yeah, that's a ladies' bag. So it's got pillows and toiletry items and that kind of a thing just to kind of give the police a way to bless the families. Um, it, it, it's trying to change the culture of the relationship between the police and the families and also bring Christ into the homes where he's not usually welcome. Um, I'm here doing an internship with them because of my connection both with OCJ and with the church. Um, I'm here to learn cross-culturally about everything going on here and to kind of help connect even more with what's going on. Oh, bless you, Faith. Thank you for joining us today. And uh, we just bless your ministry, the remainder of it here, serving um, Guthrie, Jennifer, the AOG. And uh, thank you for coming. It's um, at this point that our third contributor, Tui Keenan, would have jumped up and wowed you with an explanation about Fangaya. So Fangaya is the police, iwi, and ACC family harm team. Okay, that's what Fangaya is. It's a big group of uh, contributors. They wrap around. They provide wraparound care to families of domestic violence, which is just what Faith was saying. Um, unfortunately, Tui can't come today. She's got to be on a movie set. <laughs> um, it's through Fangaya, that overseeing body, that Tehahi, which is a um, collection of churches of Gisborne, that, that's how we're able to serve, okay? So it's through Fangaya. They're the overseeing body, the family harm team. They contact Tehahi and they tell us what they need. So some of that, the shape of that service, to be honest, has largely been food bank stuff so far. Urgent housing repairs following a domestic violence incident, like smashed up windows, smashed up doors. So it's an, it's an urgent response. It's the people who go in and we just, um, you know, put, I don't know, ply or something across the broken windows so that the woman is safe inside. Um, it's... And more recently, it's been these care bags, one of which you just were um, showing. And uh, in fact, just this month, a whole new thing has started about uh, called, I don't know what it's called, but it's blessing the Fangaya team itself because they are depleted, they're exhausted, the work is draining and hard and largely unrewarding. So um, they, the police specifically said, would Tehahi consider just even loving on them as a team. And May, in fact, is our turn. So Wainui Beach Church has been involved with Tehahi for about 
well, since it started, about three years. And at the moment, it's just myself and Jenny Rennie and Sally's hoping to come on. Um, just want to put it out there. Would you consider um, being part of this ministry? Uh, there's a combined church service on the 26th of May. Uh, don't know the time. Sometime late afternoon, I'll get it out to you. Now today, I have 16 care bags that are empty. That's all that's left up there at the moment. There are no child's care bags to be given out. There's none. Um, there are none that are full. And I'm just asking, would you consider taking one away today and filling it? So it needs a new pillow, um, one $4 warehouse towel, a $5 warehouse blanket, toothbrush, small toothpaste, and a small soap. It's not hard. Um, but no compulsion, just if you're feeling it, there are 16 or 15, this is number 16, sitting on the back table. And you can um, take that and I'll be in touch with you to collect them back in. Uh, so yeah, this is these little bags are just a small way to provide a bit of relief in the immediate aftermath of a domestic violence incident. Situations where mum, or sometimes even dad, and the kids are removed with hardly any time to gather things together for the night. So it's just the immediate, okay? It's not the long-term wraparound, it's an immediate thing. Um, I wanted to end today with um, an invitation for prayer. wasn't going to, but the Lord really laid something on my heart today. So I'm just going to read to you from 2 Timothy. Now this is Paul's final letter to Timothy. Um, he was about to be executed under Nero. So these words, oh, just take this away actually. Take this whole letter, read it in a setting, a sitting. <laughs> um, it was it's really emotional. It's like his last thing. Take this away, Timothy. Now um I'll just read it, huh? I give thanks to God whom I serve with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did. I thank him as I remember you always in my prayers night and day. I remember your tears, and I want to see you very much, so that I may be filled with joy. I remember the sincere faith you have, the kind of faith that your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice also had. I am sure that you have it also. For this reason, I remind you to keep alive the gift that God gave you. Keep alive, folks, the gift that God gave you. When I laid my hands on you, for the spirit that God has given us does not make us timid. Instead, the spirit fills us with power, love, and self-control. Now, when the Lord laid on Priscilla's heart, Nita's heart, Tammy and Gary there in Phoenix, when he laid on their heart a vision, they weren't timid with it. And although each ministry had small beginnings, it grew into something amazing because it sat under the favor of the Lord and the people involved moved forward with great faith. 